Hi, you're with the Gels TV, and you've joined us in our Spotify podcast series. We are going to deviate a little bit from what we've done before. We've talked a lot about uh, and made this conversation with David Herb regarding the history of Rangers. Uh, so please feel free to investigate them and have a listen to them. Uh, this episode is going to focus on politics. Uh, you're, we're recording this today when there's been a historic moment in Scottish the Scottish Parliament where uh, a Muslim has become First Minister for the first time. Hamza Youssef has been elected as First Minister of Scotland and uh, Nicola Sturgeon has left office. With me to discuss the developments in politics today, uh, what it means for the future of the UK and the future of Scotland within the UK as well, as a great friend of myself personally and the show, Mark Dingwell. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very well, yourself? Oh, uh, radiant as usual, radiant. I'm glad to hear it, glad to hear it, Mark. So obviously a lot of people will know who you are, but do you want to uh, introduce, introduce yourself and tell the listeners uh, who you are? Uh, I edit followfollow.com, formerly started out as a fanzine. Um, in terms of politics, I've, uh, I've stood an election both in Northern Ireland and over here. Um, and over the years, I've campaigned for quite a few different um, electoral battles and usually on the side of the, the best unionist candidate, particularly since um, 2014. Brilliant. Uh, for myself, I was involved in uh, the 2014 referendum as well. That I'll still do, do a lot, a lot of work for uh, a couple, a couple of groups uh, as well, so... Uh, I think both yourself and uh, Mark were both kind of vested in this debate and this situation. Yeah, we are. It's um, I think the uh, I think we could safely say that the union has been our our guiding lodestar um, over the years, even if things are obviously dramatically different to to how they were when we when we first started out and first got interested in politics or. Perhaps even before we get interested in politics, the the face of Scotland has been changed most noticeably by um, the rise of the SNP from a party of about 20-25%, basically in those days a protest party, a Tartan Tory party, um, to the powerhouse that it is now. Yeah, and I think that's an important uh, point to remember. The SNP are an election-winning machine. Uh, they have dominated Scottish politics for, you know, almost, you know, for at least at least the last fifteen years, and as you say, they've risen to a uh, supreme prominence in in Scotland. So what we'll do is uh, today, uh, as we're recording, uh, a new first minister was elected, and Nicola Sturgeon uh, was was obviously outgoing as well. She's now left office, so. Do you have any thoughts about uh, Nicola Sturgeon's rise to power and what achievements, if any, she's led to the SNP to in the last kind of eight years of when she's been in power? Um, I, th I think the um, the SNP under both Salmond and her, it's been almost masterly to watch how they've kept this bandwagon together. I mean, they, they routinely describe themselves as um, politically or shall we say socially liberal, left or centre. Yet this party, as we've seen with, um, with Kate Forbes, you know, 
uh, includes social conservatives. Um, you know, the old days when they used to garner up votes and, you know, kind of Persia and places like that led to them being called Tartan Tories. Um, obviously, the Salmon in particular, his campaign of uh, cuddling up to um, Cardinal uh, winning has seen, if not the death, then a, a great weakening in the link between Roman Catholicism and the Labour Party. Um and that has broken that has broken a lot of bonds, made Scottish politics a lot more fluid. And if you think that well, what what I think, I'll tell you what my, my basic philosophy is, is that I think the SNP are very difficult to deal with because they aren't a normal political party. They are a political movement. Yep. Which is slightly different. But a movement is is um signified by many things, but it is a belief which is almost um immune to debate. It's immune to the real world. It's immune to facts and figures because what they believe is that whatever problems, whether that's rail transport, ferries, health, education, industrial growth, investment, They've always got an answer, and that answer is, it'll be okay when we're independent. We'll we, you know, we'll bypass those impediments that the evil English stroke Tories, stroke Westminster, stroke Red Labour, sorry, uh, Red Tories and Labour. Anything that the on any topic that is the ultimate answer is, but if you vote for us, we get independence. It will be okay, and. Um, so to, to to have that bandwagon where you've got you know people voting for the SNP for umpteen different reasons, and to always over the last say like twenty years, is to be able to say to people, independence is just over the top of the next hill. Mm. You know, doesn't it matter what we've done, what we've done wrong. Forget that. Forget that argument we were we were on about for five years. Forget that. We've got a new argument. Brexit's a new argument, or we were lied to in the referendum. That's another argument. You know, it's another excuse, another excuse. Never mind what we're doing, never mind the failures. Just keep your eyes on that independence bandwagon. One more push, and we're there. Now, you've got them going on about we're defending Scottish democracy. Well, all the all the figures tell you by about 60%. People don't want an independence referendum. So going on about Section 30 and taking Westminster government to court, waste of time, waste of money, waste of effort, unless you measure it in political terms, which is what they do, which is plain to their core vote. It's um, it's yet more evidence that there's a conspiracy by the English or Westminster, whatever you want to call it, to stop the Scottish people doing what they want to do, which they believe which they believe in, I think, you know, it's a, whether, whether you and I agree, it's a different matter, but they genuinely believe that in their hearts of hearts, every Scottish person wants to be independent. It's yeah. just, you know, they're kind of held back a bit by, you know, conditioning by government and media TV and, you know, they've, they've, they've split the atom. They know the truth. They want to share the truth with everybody else. And to keep that bandwagon going, has been remarkable. I mean, if, if you look at the 
there's a a PhD guy, Matt, uh, I think his name's McGoughan, and he's broken down the ballot in the uh, in the election for the for the SNP leadership, yeah. and there is a bit of left right going on there. But if you look at, for instance, Yousaf, the people who voted Yousaf and then Forbes was 9,000. People who voted Yousaf, then Reagan, is 5,000. So what you're saying is, well, if um, if Hamza was, you know, the extreme left candidate, well, 10,000 of his voters, or sorry, 9,000 of his voters were quite happy to vote for, for Kate Forbes. You know, that's... This- that's odd. Whereas if you look at Forbes, um, her votes went seven, seven and a half thousand to Reagan, nine and a half to Yousaf. So even though she's a social conservative, a lot of her voters will maybe look on, well, you know, Yousaf's probably more competent than than Ash Reagan, you know, with her with her giant um independence thermometer. So yeah. it's it's a mixed bag, but I think you will have um if you look at the the leadership cadre of the SNP, not exclusively, but many of them are absolutely obsessed by sexual politics. And by that, I I don't mean that they're all gay. I believe that they are obsessed by sexual politics and that even if they aren't gay, whichever seems to be the the next flavour of... um, you know, of you know, whatever's next in the menu in terms of sexual politics, they'll instantly support it. And on the other hand, they've still got people like Kate Forbes who join it, you know, because you know they they want to see Scotland independent, and yeah. they don't buy into all this. Same as Ash Regan, as um, you know, she she just she just kind of get in her head that you know that grown men will be sharing toilets with little girls, mm-hmm. you know, so. It's, it's been a masterly way that they've managed to hold that on. But I don't think it's ever really gone away. And I think now with uh, with his relative youth, um, with the fact that um, Hamza hasn't really experienced real life, because, you know, um, I mean, you've got to say it, it is remarkable that the that the grandson of two, two Pakistani immigrants can become the leader of the, the country. And, and nobody's really batting an eyelid over that. And you know, we could say, well, why why should they? You know, if he's a citizen of the United Kingdom, citizen of Scotland, then you take people on on their merits. But this is a guy who his father's a, an accountant. He's brought up in the leafy south south side, attends Hutchie, private fee paying school. So he hasn't really experienced real life. Yep. And yet he is, you know, he's 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 a bit like one of Blair's babes, you know people who've never experienced real life, they've always been in this cocoon of politics, um, which has gotten to where he is. And I think that might tell, because whatever you think of Nicola, I mean, Nicola was a, a criminal lawyer for many years. You know, she saw the she saw the tough side of life as well. And um, I think that inexperience, plus the way that the vendettas run in the SNP, um, and I'm not pinning my hopes on this, but I think you might start to see some of the internal contradictions of the SNP coming out. And the Alba Party is a as a microcosm of that. Um, but it hasn't really 
worked either in the way that either Alba hoped or that some of us who are not SNP supporters hoped. It hasn't gained yeah. traction. They might actually have won some of the arguments, but when it comes to the, the ballot box, people aren't really prepared <laughs> in, in any great number to switch from the SNP to Alba. Whereas if you look back at the... And obviously, I know you, you can't really make you know complete comparisons with other with other situations. But if you look at um, the independence movement in Quebec in Canada, they got to something that was like forty nine point one percent were voting for Quebec independence through the and at that time really the only party that mattered was the Parti Québécois, and then they got to that level. And then they started falling out. The leaders started blaming the Anglos. They started blaming the Jews, the Muslims, the minorities for stopping a French Quebec. And, yeah. uh, and also they, they blamed the Native people who were voting, something like 97% of uh, Native Americans were voting to, to remain within the Canadian Federation. So what you then had was a series of splits at federal level, at local level, and now the part of Quebec was down to only ten seats. Um, there's a there's a left there's another left wing uh, Quebecist party. I think it's a solid solidar, uh, however you pronounce that in French. You know, Quebec solidarity. And then there's another group who are more right wing, and they've said that they will not be seeking an independence vote, but that you know if there is an opportunity for a little bit extra bit autonomy. They'll go for it, but they realise that the time isn't right and it may take decades. And so yeah. you've had a complete fracture of the uh, of the of the Quebec independence movement. There are people who either politically or culturally um you know wish to move to a, a, an independent Quebec. They've kind of realized that, you know, in in the, the, the economy, the way that they've tied into the rest of Canada. Um, and that the splits that they're engendering within Quebec society, it's not likely to happen. And so they're more or less making making the most of it. That is what I would like to see. Um, whether we do see it, I don't know. Uh, whether we see it in five years' time or in the next couple of years, who knows? But yeah. I do believe that there is a, there is a schism um, within the SNP because the contradictions... Of nationalism, if if I was a nationalist, then I would have probably voted for Kate, not on the particular fan of the the free church or or anything like that, or any of the things she believes in. But you know, if I if I was in charge of the SNP, I would be saying we need to do, we need to get economic competence. We need to Absolutely. be able to show that we can run this country properly, that we can make money, that we can slowly build up. And that's what gives people would give people the confidence to make that that yep. leap to into independence. Well, yep. So just a quick follow. That's a great, uh, great uh, conversation there. And I've a, a couple of follow up questions for you based on that. Uh, just go back to Nicola Sturgeon. You've mentioned that she was obviously a, a, a criminal lawyer. Uh, did see the kind of rough side of life. Obviously, her constituency has been, been based in kind of Glasgow South Govan, etc. But she's obviously a very intelligent person as well, which she's done incredibly well politically as well, which we have to acknowledge, I believe. But can I ask you a, a kind of serious question? You might not think it is, but 
as an intelligent person, she must know the negatives of independence as well. Do you think that she genuinely believes in it, or as a as a, a tool to stay? Was it a tool to stay in power? I think towards the end of her stay, I think it very much became. Um, it became, how could you put it, almost a lifestyle that every question she had could be turned into, yeah, but if we just had independence, you know, we would, we'd have different colours of the rainbow. You know, it's almost, you know, that's the answer to everything. Um, that she had her, her husband in charge of the party apparatus and was able to intervene in committees, able to stifle debate, able to hide um, what's going on and God knows what's going on with their accounts. And it's just coming to that point where, you know, you're starting to lose control because if you look at the the way that she's handled, um, you know, taking on the Section 30 thing where, yeah, we're going to go to court in England. Now, you, me and everybody else are saying, but you're going to lose. You're going to lose. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a waste of everybody's time and money. She didn't care because what she was betting on was, well, it's more grievance-mongering. You know, it's all these posh judges, posh English judges, stopping Scotland, having their way. And, yep. you know, she's been at it a long time. Um, I, I've never met her personally. Um, people who were with her at Glasgow Uni say that, you know, she seemed to be, and this isn't it to be unpleasant for the sake of it, but she was always just obsessed by politics, you know, from a very, very early age, almost humorless in, um, in our personal contacts with people, just very driven, very serious. And that has been her, her adult life has been, has been politics. So it must be quite a wrench for her to give that up, you know? Um, and I think we can only really guess at what her true reasons were. Yeah, well, obviously there has been some stories recently. Uh, there is a kind of missing, missing donations uh, scandal and obviously loans. Now, for legal reasons, we can't go too much into that. But uh, there is some 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 stuff, obviously, behind the surface, and you've touched upon it with the kind of infighting and the SNP becoming a bit prevalent, especially in some of the leadership debates. Before we go on to uh, the new First Minister, just finally on Nicola Sturgeon, what do you think her legacy will be? For somebody who strikes me as being a little bit, you know, she's always, you know, I don't want to be personally unpleasant here because that's, you know, that that's the easy way out. But I've all, I found her to be very cold. I found her to be so ideologically driven. You can't really imagine her having outside interests. But yet, amongst her own people, you know, she's got, what, 46% a very, very high approval rating. Now, that might be based on, you know, just the politics of it rather than, you know, any any deep insight into her personality. Yep. But she's got far higher approval ratings on a personal level than any of the other leaders. So, you know, she was obviously doing something right there. I mean, I've I've got a cousin who's a nationalist and uh one of and she and she posted that, oh Oh, really got to thank that woman for all she's done for us, you know, like mother of the nation in your land. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to, I mean, she has been very politically successful, as I say, but it's hard to kind of look at her record and go, right, that, that, that's a standout achievement. But uh, so moving on then, uh, obviously we have got a new first minister and we think we both acknowledged that at the start and through uh, 
the episode that is a remarkable achievement and hats off to, to somebody that can, that can achieve that. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, not many people will become First Minister and achieve so much in politics, but I think it's important to look at uh, the track record of Hamza Yousaf. Now, I think that I was going to talk about this with Nicola Sturgeon, but they both go hand in hand. And the first one is that when he was Transport Minister, I believe that he instigated the ferries project. Is that correct? Well, certainly he was up to his neck in it. And I think the the cliche that's been done in all the in all the political programming, whether it's you know BBC, STV, Sky, um, if you look at his track record as a minister, it's been disaster after disaster. Obviously, there is a counter argument to that. And um, I mean, I've actually met him a couple of times, and he's always struck me as being. I wouldn't say a cold fish, but somebody who thinks before he speaks. You know, so, you know, so as you as you're talking to him, you can see he's taking it in, and right. then, you know and the wheels are working behind his head. Um, but he's always very, very, very self controlled. So he's obviously got answers for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it has been disaster after disaster, yeah. and what what I did was. I phoned a couple of people that I know who are actually MSPs. Yeah. <clears throat> and I said, I said, putting aside, <coughs> pardon me, putting aside all your prejudices, what do you make of them? Sorry, what do you make of them? And they said, um, he's a disaster. Mm, interesting. He isn't very good. But like a lot of people, and you see this a lot in, um, in, in local politics, is that... <clears throat> Politicians, to a great extent, don't don't know a huge lot about delivery, and what they depend on is their civil service, and yeah. their civil service advice, and their civil service enablers who actually get the job done. And I think, to a certain extent, he's been able to pull on, um, you know, his, his civil service uh, support to get him to get him through things or muddle his way through. As first minister. I don't think you have quite that protection because one, the scrutiny is a lot, a lot deeper, and you don't really get the chance to deflect it onto your ministers. You can do that once or twice, but you know, once you start stabbing the troops in the back, slippery you know, it's, yeah. yeah, it is a slippery slope. So I think there's, um, you know, you've also got you, you. We also have to face up to the 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 possibility that he might grow into the office. So I'm not expecting him to suddenly, you know, be in charge of the Keystone Cops tomorrow mm-hmm. and to make, you know, howl and error after howl and error. But I think that over the period, then he will have learned things being in office, but his record is what damns him, is yeah. that he's not particularly competent. Yeah. And yeah. even though he's been in charge of some of the you know, quite quite large, quite important offices of state to actually be the one who ultimately carries the can, um, then that might be a bridge too far for him. It was interesting. I did a little bit of research before speaking to you, and apparently, uh, it's it's cheaper to build two uh, Type Twenty Three state of the art destroyers that can navigate the world, deep blue ocean, and fight wars than it is to buy a. Uh, or to build uh, two passenger ferries in Scotland, which I thought was quite interesting as well. So, uh, 
Obviously, oh, I can, I, can, I, can I just say, I mean, there's been all sorts of jokes about the ferries, right? But see, see when you actually roll back a bit and just say, right, right, for, for, forget, the, for, forget the joviality here. Yeah. Think yeah. about it. They launched a ferry where they had painted the <laughs> yeah, window. It's right. incredible. It's right. incredible. And put up a false funnel. I mean, <laughs> I mean when you say that out loud... I mean, people look at you and go, they did what? And you're like, yes. No, can't be true. It is yeah. true. You know, it's, real it's life is, strange, is, is stranger than that. I mean, if somebody came to you and said, Gordon, you're in charge of the ferries, but listen, pal, they're <laughs> going to paint some windows and put up a false funnel. You or I would go, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. The chances of getting caught in that are far too high. Yeah. These people don't care. They don't yeah. care. They, they're just like, Okay, yeah. If you think that will get us over a problem, then that's fine. You know, um, I think it's been it's almost been like the Tories in reverse. If you remember back a few years ago, week after week, the Tories had disaster after disaster where they were crucified in the papers. The SNP have had disaster after disaster, but they only really get crucified in the Daily Mail. You know, the Sun, the Record, the Herald, for different reasons all pull their punches with the SNP. Now, whether that's to support them or they're afraid to stand up to them or they want to pull their punches because their money that they control um, for advertising through the government is so high, well, you can, you can dream of the, the answers. I think that the, moving forward with the SNP, it's, it's going to become higher stakes because the more that we get away from 2014, some of their um some of their great um what could you call them myths start to fall away. So for instance, we were told in 2014 unionists are going to die out. They're all old people. Um that, yep. once the legacy of the Second World War finishes. Okay, so since then there's about half a million Scottish people have died. So if we're if we're taking the cliche, say they were all unionists. Union Jack waving gammons. Hmm. Right? So you're following me on this. Half a million are dead. Yeah. Half a million are new. New to voting. Guess what? The percentages are almost exactly the same. So yep. a lot of these new people coming through must be unionists, must be younger people voting for the union. Um, yep. one, of, one of the great things, or sorry, it's not really a great thing, but one of the great dangers I see for the union that you know, people in unionist groups don't really seem to be fighting is, is what I would call the cultural war. Now, for instance, we can have a laugh at the, the National when they run a campaign against what they call union jackery. So they see a Scottish company that puts a union jack in their produce on lamb, and, I mean, they're actually going into shops and trying to get people to remove the union jack, to remove the union jack from Scottish life. <laughs> You know, so that young people coming through never see a Union Jack, never hear anything good about Britain. Britain doesn't exist. You can't be British. Uh, if you want to be British, you really just want to be a... You really yeah. just want to be British. You're a traitor to your country. And there's that pressure as well as the political pressure. And I don't think that's really uh, uh, a campaign that we've actually ever thought, you know, because we've been so busy with politics, but because yeah. these people are um, 
what, what you find with the SNP is that you and I can be activists, but we could never be an activist like an SNP activist because they are completely obsessed. Every waking hour is on the internet, it's knocking doors, it's a complete lifestyle that excludes normal life. And to be honest, I wouldn't want us to be like them because I don't think it's I don't think it's healthy for people to be that obsessed. But that's what you're up against. It's um you know, it's a complete mania um yeah. by people involved you're absolutely in the right. They they made yeah. they've made campaigning and activism an art form. Uh, they really have, and I think that they, I, we can't, oh, we can never forget that they, they have done exceptionally well. So you made some interesting points talking about the, talking about the future. So let's go on to that, uh, just for the kind of last uh, the last rows of the episode. Then, so I think that the, the sense of the opposition parties in Scotland uh, right now, Labour, <clears throat> Lib Dem, Conservative, there seems to be optimism because they don't rate. Uh, the new first minister too highly. Do you think they've got reason to be optimistic, or do you think that they don't? There's no one. Do you think there's somebody in Scotland, Scottish politics right now, that's got the gravitas and the the celebrity, if you like, for want a better better word, to uh, make a stand and, and punch through the SNP numbers? I, th- I think if if you look at what um what Anna Sarwar's doing, it's actually quite clever because. I think he realises, right, you know, my big problem is that a lot of my voters have gone to the SNP. So how am I going to get them back? Am I going to get them back by waving the Union Jack and being, you know, overtly ultra-British? No, I'm not. You've got to make it easy for them to slip back to voting Labour. And you do that by having workable policies, by being competent in... in um, in, in Holyrood, uh, by offering decent candidates and by being, you know, all that hanging together will slowly peel people away. It's a longer term strategy. You know, it's not a magic bullet strategy. Yeah. And I think he's probably got about four or five years where that's what he's going to do is to slowly win back um, those voters from the SNP. Um, is he completely polished? Is he very avuncular on TV? No, he seems a little bit wooden at times, but hey-ho, you know, I mean, most political parties aren't, aren't led by, you know, Bruce Forsyth or Kenneth Williams, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not all wits. Um, the Tories, I think, have got a bit of a problem because although in terms of our, um, our policies, you could argue you know, what was good about Ruth, what was bad about Ruth. But she had the common touch and she made the Tory party votable for everybody that feels comfortable being a Tory. And I'm afraid that the current leader um, is a wee bit of a wet drip. So he's a bit difficult. In terms of the, the Lib Dems, which is not really an animal that, you know, you and I come across too often, in, in West Central Scotland, but they obviously do have their supporters throughout the country and traditionally have held quite a few seats. I think Alec, um, Alec um, Cole, whatever his name is. Alton, yeah. <laughs> Another great with double barrel names. And uh, Cole Hamilton. And um, if you look at what he's done, he's, he's unionist with a small U. You know, he's, he's strong on the union when it matters. And then his his grasp of policy has been good, and yeah. I think he appeals very much to those people who are minded to vote Lib Dem, 
and he's he's pretty confident and he's very good on camera. So I think in terms of the uh, you know unionists with a small U, there's no magic bullet. People, when you get into arguments with some of our brothers and sisters who are um, who are unionists, he keeps it. Oh, we, if only we had one party. Guess what? That ain't going to happen. You know. Yeah. You know because. People who vote for the union, they're not all... I mean, I like the Union Jack. I like reading about the British Empire. Um, but there's a lot of people don't. There's a lot of people who vote, um, frankly, because they think that independence is, is, a, is a financial basket case. But they may be culturally and even slightly politically Scottish nationalist. You know, they might believe that, you know, Scotland... As I do, Scotland as a as a nation. I also happen to believe that I'm part of a British nation, and I don't see any conflict between the two. Yeah. But you've got people who are voting for the union who aren't unionists. That might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but that's the way it is. And you've got people who will vote for the union, but they'll never vote Tory, or they're voting for the union, but they'll never vote Labour. As soon as you start to make them make a decision on that. You're finished. Yeah, that's just I mean, I could argue with people all night, but from my experience, that's the way it is. I mean, looking back to Better Together, there were a few um, Labour Party guys who wanted to have a separate um, Labour campaign because they just thought if we get in bed with the Tories, we'll just get slaughtered by the SNP that, you know, we are. Were red Tories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, thankfully, better together in in the end worked. Perhaps not perfectly, um, but it, but it did work. So I think we've got to have, we've got to be realistic about what we can achieve. And my my view has always been that it's relatively easy in most constituencies to work out who's most likely to beat the SNP, and whether that's voting Labour. Tory, a Liberal Democrat, then I don't have a huge problem with voting for any of them. Yeah, you know? I think I think certainly in the short in the short term anyway, uh, whilst uh, unfortunately the future of the UK is for reasons only known to the SNP is still uh, up for debate apparently. We are coming to the end of the episode. Uh, you know, I would just like to make a comment that the SNP, the vote today was 52% 48, so there's certainly a uh, if if the if Labour Tories lived down, if they got that to get a little bit in Scotland, they could maybe possibly exploit that. Just kind of kind of like the final kind of question and a uh, kind of I said like one not one word answer, obviously, Mark, but you know just maybe a, a sentence or two. Uh, do you think that the election of the new first minister will make independence more or less likely? Impossible to say. I would like to think that will make it less likely because he's. Um... I believe that he will be incompetent and in the high office that he's taken on, then it's it's a really high wire act. What can we all do to ensure that he doesn't reach his uh, his lifetime's ambition of seeing a separate Scotland? Is um is be active, go out and help. You don't need to join a political party, that would help. But if you don't, then you know, go out and support candidates. Vote, make sure that you're registered to vote, make sure that your friends are registered to vote. And um, if you've got the chance, you know, 
get onto radio shows, write to a newspaper. Do these little things about campaigning, because if we all do a little bit, we all do a lot. Yep, absolutely fantastic uh, point there. Uh, what a fantastic, inspirational couple of sentences to uh, end the episode. Uh, so that kind of wraps things up for now. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Mark Dingwall for, for joining us tonight. Mark, you do some fantastic work with Follow Follow, so uh, thank you very much for all your efforts on that. And I'd just like to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode. Please check out our uh, previous episodes, History of Rangers, with myself and David Heard. Once again, thank you all. Thanks to, to uh, Mark Dingwall, and thanks for supporting the GLS TV. Thanks a lot. See you soon.